You're listening to The Serpent Stream, hosted by Jeff Godbold and Terry Burwell. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Serpent Stream with Terry and Jeff. Jeff, how's it going? Good, man. Awesome. Man, we're doing something a little bit different on this episode, and Jeff had a really good idea to uh, change up the format a little bit. And why don't you tell us a little bit of what our listeners are going to experience today? It, it's a little bit different. I've There's a lot of really great uh, podcasts out there, and um, there's a lot of things that uh, people can get from multiple sources. Um, and I didn't want to just for the serpent stream, I didn't want us just to be another podcast. So, uh, we're kind of doing a little series of shows where we're kind of asking some basic, often overlooked questions to some of the breeders in the hobby. Um, these aren't just snake breeders, but these are just breeders of reptiles and they're people that have consistently consistently maintained a pretty good uh, reputation uh, across all, all spectrums. You know, if you talk to people in multiple uh, facets of the reptile hobby, I have not ever heard anything bad uh, said about them. So anyway, what I guess it would come off as a little bit sport cast, sports casty, but what we want to do is we want to uh, start off this show with talking about um, some of the some of the things that really drive the passion for these breeders, um, and the breeders being uh, Nick Mutton, uh, we've got also Frank Payne, and we've also got uh, Brian Susan, and so or Susan. I don't know exactly how he pronounces his last name. I think it's Susan. Susan. Um, apologies, Brian. So. <laughs> but anyway, um, we want to ask them. A uh, few things, same questions, and get their responses. And I, I think that, uh, you know, this is going to be a fun show. Heck yeah, man. So not only one person, not yes. only two yes. guests, <laughs> but three guests today on this episode. That's awesome, man. And you said this was going to be a series? You mean this isn't this isn't the only episode we're going to do like this? Uh, I don't think so. I have talked to so many people that we have enough time to basically fill up like three or four episodes so man that's super cool fun. a lot of different yeah. names coming at you guys yeah. don't don't spoil it no spoiler alerts yet <laughs> anyway so um who do we have first that we're talking well let's about? talk about these guys so nick mutton you know we will introduce the he needs no introduction author of the complete carpet python author of the more complete carpet python coming out this year which I'm super excited about. Um, I, I read that book uh, quite a bit every single year and I don't have that many carpets. You know, I've, I read it for the diamond pythons and, uh, and the rough skill pythons, but I refer to that book every single year. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And he's even, he even talks about it a little bit and how there are some things on that book that he has now expounded upon or like things that like, you know, things that he had little uh, experiments he's got going where he's got more data and everything to follow up with those findings in the first book. So um, the second series that's coming out is going to be absolutely awesome. Well, and I think he's mostly known uh, in the community and around the hobby for his work with carpet pythons, which is extensive, but maybe what people don't know is that he has bred a monot like 
a, a ma amazing amount of species, uh, including tannin bar pythons, um, the liasis pythons, water pythons, olive pythons. Jack of all trades, I guess you would say, when it comes to reptile, because he's got this, you know, list that's like a mile long of everything that he's worked with and or produced. So that's funny you mentioned that because uh, let's let's talk about this other guest, Frank Payne. Listen to this list. Carpet chameleons, blue tongue skinks, jeweled lacertas, king ornum, the king's dwarf monitors, blue spiny lizards, electric blue day geckos. I mean, talk about a, a laundry list of um, species here. And what I love about uh, Frank is he's put out so much content for the species that he keeps. He's got a phenomenal YouTube channel. Published in Reptiles Magazine multiple times. He's been on multiple podcasts. Check him out on the Chameleon Breeder podcast. I know he's been on several se several podcasts. Corrales and Radio. <clears throat> he's been on Corrales. <laughs> and uh, so just, just fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Super excited to dive into that. Yeah. And, and then we got Brian, who's actually, a, you know, I want to say friend, I've met him in person at the Tinley show, but uh, I've known Brian um, just by name uh, since uh, around the Chondro web MVF days, because he used to do a lot of work with uh, green tree pythons, or maybe that was what he kept exclusively. I don't know exactly, but I do know his name because we used to comment on the forums, you know, when the internet was not as, you know, or I'm sorry, Facebook mm -hmm. wasn't as mainstream as it is now. Mm -hmm. um, back when there were forums, but Brian has a tremendous collection of geckos and that's really what his passion is, but he also works with green tree pythons. And if I'm not mistaken, he just had a clutch that has blue and might phase lineage uh, going back to some pretty outstanding bloodlines uh, with this uh, clutch of chondros that he just hatched, that's but awesome. his geckos and stuff are, are, he really likes the niche stuff. That's, that's pretty rare. For sure. And blue tree monitors yep. and yellow tree monitors, maybe green tree monitors too. I don't know. So I'm on his website. All three of our guests have phenomenal websites. Uh, Brian is a name that really you introduced me to. I would not heard of the guy before. And, and once you, you mentioned him, I said, I gotta go check this guy out. Followed him on Instagram, looked at his website. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like I'll say this, all three of these guys have beautiful websites Go check out Sundown Reptiles. That's Brian's. Um, Frank's is called livingartbyfrankpain.com. And then Inland Reptile is Nick's. And we were talking about this before. It's I have so much respect for somebody that has a website that is currently maintained. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, updated, you know, 8 of 2008. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Expecting a green tree python babies in 2010 you know yeah. that's that's yeah. kind of frustrating because that's, that's what my <laughs> website says my website is is my wordpress website is um let me know if you want to get some of these rhino rat snake babies that are uh, that i hatched out in oh 2016 i think so well you yeah, could have stopped at wordpress <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone uses uses that oh, <laughs> i didn't even so know true. around anymore oh it's so true but let, let me read off some of these <clears throat> some of these species that Brian's working with: gargoyle geckos, blue tree monitors, green tree pythons, mossy prehensile-tailed gecko. Tell me you've ever heard of that one? 
Have you ever heard I, of that one? You're I, a liar. I have, but that's just never because heard I, I like geckos. <laughs> um, the Rachidactylus, uh, northern spiny tail gecko. That thing looks just that they is look awesome. like dinosaurs. That's one of the coolest lizards in the kingdom. Red lip alligator lizard. Like I'm getting schooled here on lizards. I didn't know most of these exist. The riverine leaf tail gecko. This is this is next level. Yeah, he he uh, he's got a lot of stuff that's really really unique. And as far as I know, he's pretty consistent with his success in breeding those those species, mm-hmm. which he kind of talks about here in a few minutes. That's fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's dive right into it. Why don't before we do that, why don't you explain the questions um, that that you had wanted answers to and that you had asked each of the three guys? Okay, so, um, you know, these these are kind of basic, but uh, I feel like a lot of times when we have guests on, we kind of go over the same stuff. And I kind of alluded to this earlier with, you know, species and husbandry and stuff like that. Um, but we know these folks because they've been really successful and they've maintained a really stand up reputation and all that. But, you know, we don't really know a lot about what drives what, what, what drives the passion and also what, you know, because, you know, you see this a lot with social media where we basically compare our lives to the highlights of other people's lives, you know, and this is with anything, not just reptiles, uh, because you're only seeing the good things, you know, the wins, but what we don't see a lot of times are the losses or the failures. Um, and sometimes, you know, with my, my kids, I have three girls and it's like, they'll, they'll say something and I'll kind of say, well, you, you have to remember that like, you're only seeing part of part of the picture here. Mm -hmm. And we do the same thing in the hobby. And as reptile keepers, we, feel like you know hey so and so so successful and we get down on ourselves or, or whatever the case may be but what we have to keep in mind is that uh you know this the success that we see them post about or that we see from these other uh keepers um it hasn't come without failure and they'll all tell you that mm-hmm. you know there's been some bumps along the way and so and work you know that's another thing too i i, I agree with you and the third question is if like i guess i think i use i I use the word regrets when i was asking the questions but i think that maybe regrets not the 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 right word basically what i'm asking is if you could go back and redo things is there anything you would do different you know um that in my mind, when I was thinking about the question, I was like, yeah, if you have any regrets, but you know, even the challenges or the, or the mistakes, a lot of times I, and I've learned this now from the show that a lot of times people don't really wish they could go back and do mistakes over because they learned from them and they changed whatever it was to need that they needed to change in order to overcome that mistake. And now they've had all these rewards and success because of it. So I guess uh, what I really want to know is just if there was something you could do different, what would it be? And I'm sure the lists are pretty small. um, And it seems like, you know, that's something that doesn't get talked about. You know, again, you're hearing all the positives and stuff of all these uh, breeders and keepers and stuff through their social media. But, you know, very, 
very seldom do you have a post that pops up on your feed that says, Hey, here's a little thought of the day. You know, I was thinking about my experience with a, B and C. And if I could really redo this, this, and this back then, you know, you know what I mean? You don't really see posts like that. Yeah. But man, Hey, isn't that, um, I wouldn't even call it negative. You know, I know you just, you you know, you said that talk about it because it's negative, but I think, wow, how, how valuable and how empowering would that be to learn from the the mistakes of others or to say, you know, Hey, this is how I did it. And if I did it all over again, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do this. You know, back in the forum days, I wrote a, my top 10 mistakes in herpetoculture. Now what's really funny about this is I'd never bred anything in my entire life, which actually I almost want to retract that statement because it's almost as if you're, I'm saying you're not relevant if you, unless you breed something. And that right, is not my right. state. That's not my statement at all. But, uh, I so I, I apologize for even saying that, but just to say my experience level at the time. And I, I did, I was like, here's my top 10, uh, ex- fa- failures, right. In, or mistakes in, uh, herpetoculture. And I'd hoped that it would catch on and, and a lot of people would tell me theirs, you know, and we'd have this, you know, cool thread. And I remember like number one, number three, and number seven were all the same. And they were all like, I bought a green iguana. Like <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of my mistakes, you know, my third mistake, I bought a green iguana, you know? Uh, well, I think you need to get, you need to read some care sheets and go down to South Florida and catch you an iguana then. Yeah. Oh man. Iguanas are hard to take care of, man. So. Heck, heck yeah, all right, cool. Dude. So, we, so these are the, so those are the questions you got, uh, your greatest accomplishment or your most proudest moment. Let's see, two, your greatest challenge, and three, uh, your biggest regret. Yeah, you basically said what I could have said, but I decided to get wordy and uh, <laughs> explain. So apologize right. to the listeners. <laughs> Some of our listeners might have a long drive, so they're going to appreciate that. All right, let's 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 dive right into it uh, with Nick's first answer to his question. Let's see what he has to say. Okay, and your reptile keeping slash breeding career what is the one thing that you're the proudest about Uh, for me that was probably the publication of the first edition of the complete carpet python book Uh, that was the first book i would able i was able to uh, work on as an author Um, and personally i grew up in an area of the country where there's not a lot of reptile people not much of a community so i was not able to have like a traditional sort of mentor relationship so many people in the hobby have that person that kind of got them into the hobby and that kind of showed them the ropes and brought them in and i didn't have that i just had books and i can honestly say that uh in a lot in a very real sense that uh dave and tracy barker's pythons of the world volume one australia and ross and marchek's reproductive husbandry of bows and pythons those two books completely inspired me to do this i would not be doing this my entire career is largely influenced and inspired by those two books so to be able to come full circle and publish books of my own and pass on what i have learned to another generation uh really was a kind of a it it felt good to actually be on the other side of that yeah i mean you got to look at these things not just as uh, it's certainly not something you do for a profit or anything like that but it's it's your legacy it's like it's something that will be around after i am gone uh, that this will still exist and that sort of permanence to it and everything. I I'm, I'm proud of that, I guess. And I've been lucky. I've 
or not lucky necessarily, but I've been able to, I've got several additional books in the pipeline at various stages at the moment and a few academic papers and other publications and things. So it's to have gotten to that point where I'm like doing that sort of thing. Uh, for me, that's kind of a, a culmination of my career, I guess. Let me read the about the author section of for Nick Mutton on the complete carpet python. This is what it says. Nick Mutton has been keeping and breeding pythons for over two decades. During that time, he has worked extensively with 33 separate python taxa, including many of the world's rarest. Throughout that time, his primary focus has been on the Australasian pythons with a special emphasis on the carpet python complex. In 2006, Nick made the, per the decision to pursue a lifelong dream of becoming a full-time python breeder. As the founder of Inland Reptile, he maintains one of the country's most extensive collections of Indo-Australian pythons. Nick has been a speaker at several herpetological events and symposiums, most notably speaking on carpet pythons at the National Reptile Breeders Expo in 2010. What, what can you say? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, mean, yeah. I mean, he's just... But, but you, you, know what, you know what is interesting to me with that is there, there's no PhD there's no, there's no, it doesn't say where he went to university. It doesn't say his education. You know, this is, this is experience. This is real world. You know, you know, he's talking about the books that he's written, the books that he's got planned, these, you know, scholarly articles, scientific journal papers that he's going to write. And I'm thinking, oh man, oh, he's got to be a professor or researcher, or, you know, something. And it's like, no, man, this is a dude that just really, really loves snakes. <laughs> that's that's the way you and i would put it but i do feel like he has you know it's one thing about getting your 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 knowledge from literature from books and things like that it's another thing to get it from you know real world like you put it uh hands-on experience and like you know i feel like if if i was you know basically I mean, look at a doctor like, yeah, they have all this book stuff that, that they have to, you know, study and, and learn. But there's a lot of practical exams that are that, that go into getting that title. And so I just feel like when it comes to hands on experience uh, with keeping reptiles, I mean, Nick's up there, you know, at the very top. Right. As far sure. as what, what peers would what kind of experience peers would have. So do you, I got to ask you, you know, he mentioned two books, you know, Pythons of the World, Volume 1, Australia, the Barker book, and the Ross and Marzek, uh, Reproductive Husbandry of Boas and Pythons. Do you have, or have you ever had either or both of those books? I do have the first one. What is the second one again? What was the, the name the, of the, It's the blue, you know, we call it the blue Bible, the, the Reproductive Husbandry of Boas and Pythons. Yeah, no, I have that one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the Pythons of the World, Volume 1, Australia, yes. from yes. the Barkers? Yes. Oh, you lucky duck. You lucky duck. I don't, I don't have that one. I, but I don't know if this makes up for it. But I do have two copies of, of Ross and Marzik's Blue Book, as well as the spiral-bound Python breeding manual that he wrote before that book. So I don't know if that makes up for it. But. No, I, I think that's a solid, that's a solid wash. I, that's, think. That's, <laughs> I think you're good. Oh uh, man, yeah. you're at you're at nil. Yeah. Okay. What? So what books? 
what books inspired you when you were getting into this? Or did you did you have a mentor? Did you have friends that were into this? Or were you a, were you a lone wolf like Nick was? Um, hi, gosh, this is a this is a decent. Gosh, you packed a lot in with that question. That was a little sneak attack. Mm. Uh, you, you, I, there's a there's a there's only one way I can answer this, and there's multiple parts to that answer. But so I got it. First of all, are you talking about doing the podcast or just enough keeping reptiles? Uh, keeping yeah, keeping reptiles, keeping reptiles right? Okay, yeah, because reptiles. the podcast came out of the reptile passion. So yeah, just, yeah, 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 and boredom. But so when I start when I was a kid, I grew up in Florida, in North Florida. Um, we lived in a neighborhood, suburban neighborhood, but it, before you get, my, before you get too, too down, far down, is an, it's a one hour podcast, Jeff, just let you know. Yes. Okay. okay go ahead. Uh, I'll be quick. I'll, I'll keep it to five minutes. Okay. All right. So grew up in Florida. My house was the first house of the neighborhood and there was like multiple phases. So I just pretty much ran around and played in the woods. Um, it's Florida. So there's water everywhere. So I was always down there catching stuff, um, mostly turtles and, and snakes and stuff like that. And so I didn't really have anyone that really pushed me to that. Uh, my mom did bring me a baby uh, turtle, um, a painted turtle, uh, because one of the people that she worked with, they saw the mom lay the eggs or I don't remember if the eggs were, were dug up by their house, but they basically pulled four eggs out incubated them and when the turtles all hatched when my mom was working she said hey do you want one my mom brought me home this turtle and that's kind of like i can't remember if that was where it started or because i'd you know i've been you know a kid getting into stuff before that but as an early boy like my earliest experience like that's kind of the one that you know sticks out um the most were, and so, were any of your were any of your peers or your friends at school into no reptiles? none uh, in fact when we would go fish i was usually the one that stayed behind when everyone was done fishing and just looking for stuff i used to go down with rakes to the to the ponds and pull up big like uh, aquatic like uh, plants and stuff and get fish and turtles and crawdads and all this stuff in there and you know, I'd raise it up for a little while, keep it for a few months and then take it back and, and, and put it back in the water. And that's just what I did as a kid, you know, from the, from the age of like four or five, uh, because I, I recall that house I moved into, I was in kindergarten. Um, so I was five years old and that's, that's kind of when it started. And, and, um, you know, fast forward to my early twenties and I really wanted to get in a snake and I stumbled onto Greg Maxwell's website in 2006 mm. or man, no, it was 2004, 2005. And when I saw green tree pythons, I was like, Oh my gosh. And I got kind of back heavy into reptiles with chondros exclusively. And, um, you know, it didn't really, I didn't really care about anything else beyond that. And I had a friend, um, Brian Emanuel who, is the founder of the Nyoka Irian uh, Jaya carpet line. I don't know how many people out there have Nyoka line IJs, but um, he lived near me and he had a really, really broad collection of stuff. And so 
I just started going over to his place and this is the early 2000s and, you know, seeing what else was out there. He always was big on like having a really diverse collection and that's kind of always stuck with me as far as like, you know, now I keep a lot of different stuff. So that's kind of where that came from, I guess. I had... I, I was definitely alone in my interest. I didn't have anybody that was interested in, in the things. Fortunately, I had parents and family that was very supportive of, of me keeping them. They never tried to dissuade me from keeping them. And, and I had a library card. And when I, was in, when I was in elementary school, my librarian, Mrs. Holt, would save me every single reptile book that came in like we got new reptile books she would save it for me and she would let me know hey we got a new reptile book in and i can remember these these books you know um reptiles as pets wild animals as pets um uh, one just called rattlesnakes i mean i can remember all of these books and i would just devour them funny story about that is that was that was elementary school that was second and third grade in Kansas, I moved away from Kansas, graduated from college and stuff uh, in Wyoming. My parents moved back. I I was back staying with my parents, visiting them 25 years later, right? And I saw a woman broken down on the side of the road. She had a flat tire and I pulled over and I changed her flat tire. And it was that librarian. It was Mrs. Holt 25 years later. <laughs> That's crazy, dude. Yeah. And, and like she was, I remember her being ancient when I was in elementary school. I, was, I couldn't believe she was still alive. You know, she was probably just held together by the formaldehyde. <laughs> and I told her she tried to pay me, you know, for <laughs> fixing her tire. And I said, I said, Mrs. Holt, I said, you might not know this and you probably don't remember me, but my name is Terry. I was one of your students. I told her the whole story. And I said, I, I, I said, I am addicted to snakes to this day. And I said, I would never accept this money for changing your tire. So I was happy to do it. So, Oh, that's cool, man. That's really yeah. cool. That was that's cool. awesome. Yeah. One of my sister science teachers in Wyoming, Dan McCarran was his name. And at parent teacher conferences, for my sister, I had to go. And I was like, why do I have to go? Well, he kept a bunch of snakes and uh, at the school. And so I, I got to see him. You know, it was like, hey, my brother's really into this. Will you show it to him? So he showed me all these snakes. Well, it just so happened to be he was on the board of directors for the Vivarium magazine. He was oh, the educational coordinator. Talk about a so hookup. He, he introduced me to the Vivarium magazine. Uh, he introduced me to... Um, Philippe de Vaugelais, you know, advanced vivarium systems, you know, he, so I got the corn snake books and the Burmese Python books and the ball Python, but you know, it was like, Philippe was the man, you know, oh, yeah. when it comes to, to See, what we call that, a care sheet. I didn't know about any of that stuff until the internet because oh, I didn't, and, I didn't, I didn't have friends or, or, or have right. contacts like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the vivarium was huge, you know, and I feel like the vivarium preceded reptiles magazine. And then, you know, my dad brought reptiles magazine home one time. And so I 100% relate to what Nick is saying here, that books inspired him, taught him and, uh, you know, to, and supported him in, in his infancy and in this whole thing. Sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hey, before we get to the next guest, I got one thing I want to ask you though. So what's your, what's you, in your opinion, 
your favorite book and your the worst one, the one that you just not that interested in. The worst dude. That's such a dick move. That's not a nice thing to say. <laughs> like, like, hey, I want to, I want you to give props to somebody, and then I just want you to poop all over as like some author's work. You know? Well, hopefully you know? they're not the same dude. Oh my gosh. <laughs> What if they were the same dude? That would be oh, really man. funny. That'd be that'd be oh. that'd make it even better. Oh. Well, okay. Okay, so, so tell me your my... favorite. Tell me your favorite one. How favorite? I mean, it's it's hard to beat the reproductive husbandry of bows and pythons. I, I yep. it, as as old as that book is, it's still current. I still refer to it every single year, sometimes multiple times a year. Um, that's that's an absolute. I I love that book. Um, but I mean, I'm not, yeah. I, I don't have a book that I don't like. Um, I, well, like most of my stuff, like I don't really have time to read that much unless it's on vacation. So my stuff's in pretty good condition, but I will say that the, the more complete Condro from Greg Maxwell, I wore that one so much that the, it literally fell apart. Like the, the cover and everything just fell apart. The like wore like the print off the, off the, the wraparound up that was on the cover. Everything yeah. Like that. Yeah. I, I love that book and I know it's outdated and it's not like a lot of that stuff is not even relevant with today's uh, green tree Python keeping like, you know, of what's, practiced you know and found to to work the best but i just loved the way it was put together it was very well written and the points that he makes in the book he backs it up with his own you know stuff and, and there's tons of pictures i mean you see you know oh, the pictures in that thing alone yeah i think and, the yeah so anyway okay uh quick question for you if you wrote a book what would it be about does not have to be reptile related Dude, I'm not smart enough to write well, a book. I, I know that. I know that. But I mean, I, you know that. I just wanted to, if you wrote a book, what would it be about? I mean, would it would be a coloring book. I mean, you know. Um, you know, I I have thought of like it would be cool if somebody, I, dude. I don't know, man. Like, I don't feel like I have enough experience with any of the stuff I keep yeah. to write a book about it, and I don't feel like I'm the most knowledgeable about it, but. On the flip side, I'm also not interested in anything or not passionate about anything enough to that's not reptile related to write a book. So reptiles would be the only thing I would write, and I just don't feel like I'm I'm comp, a competent person to or like what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I just feel inadequate. I don't feel like I could I could put something. I mean, I could write something. I just don't feel like my experience justifies like a book i feel like there are other people that could they could probably talk about it that are better suited than me however yeah, that's, that, that's that's true i mean that's i mean i don't mean like i'm not saying yeah it's true you're dumb no i'm not saying that but i'm saying i think it's rare that the expert of the subject is the one that writes the book right oh so yeah i feel yeah, like that's true the I feel like the author may become an expert of the subject or the author stands on the shoulders of the experts that maybe don't have the time or the interest to write the books. And, you know, we talk about these books that we grew up with that might be outdated or, or whatever, but, um, you know, would there be 
a would there be a complete carpet python without the reproductive husbandry of boas and pythons you know would there be oh, yeah true you know would there be um you know all, all these great books that we have now if there wasn't you know the advanced vivariums you know successful re- husbandry and reproduction of insert species you know leopard gecko burmese python ball python you know right yeah. Would there be a Pythons of the World Volume 2 ball pythons if there was never the ball python manual to begin with, you know? I could so. do one on Amazon tree boas. I, I've, I would like to do one on that. If I was going to do one, I would. that's what I'm the most passionate about, so I would do one about those. Corallus hortolanus. That'd be cool. Um, yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. Cool. All right, well, let's... Let's roll on into uh, Frank's answer to the same question. Here we go. What is your proudest moment as a reptile keeper slash breeder? Okay. Uh, So I think if I had to pick one, my proudest moment as a breeder would be when I realized that I had produced over a thousand electric blue geckos, which is the Ligodaculus Williamsi. Um, I had been working with them for a long time. So it wasn't like, like a, like a, a special hatchling or anything like that. Something I'd been working with for years, but then I kind of just did a little calculation and checked my records. And I realized like, okay, wow, I've produced over a thousand of these animals. They're critically endangered in the wild. Um, and I've put out at this point over a thousand of them out into the hobby and the industry. Um, and I, I do think that before I came along, they weren't as kind of mainstream as they are now. Um, I think there was only like two other people breeding them in any sort of numbers before I came along. Um, and I feel really proud with where they are in the industry and hobby right now. I feel like I had a hand in that. Cool. All right. Short and sweet. Yeah. Um, probably one of the coolest gecko species out there are the the Williams I I love them I have tried working with them and I had a group of them that is now at one because I've either killed them or they've gotten out so hey there's one of my failures um (laughs) (laughs) yeah and can a thousand and so what's so crazy about this and and he's alluding to this but I I, it needs to be stated because these are in endang- these are endangered species. Am I right? Oh, yeah. This Habitat. is this is not a common animal. Um, this is like just like the white rhino of of geckos here, right? And and he's saying, yeah. I've, I mean, he's not saying it, you know, like oh yeah, I've made a thousand of them. But I just want to say, like, whoa, dude, you made a thousand of these things, like a thousand endangered species. Right. Like a thousand of an endangered species, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. And it's, you know, one of the things that I think makes uh, Frank kind of unique is, you know, how much of these things, because he's actually working with some other stuff, like some skinks and stuff that's very, very endangered, like, like stuff. Oh, they can't flying geckos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, stuff that you just you're not going to see in the wild, and and if you do, it's like, you know, you're, you're not going like, to see it at a zoo. Yeah, you know? right. Um, so, but the longer he works with it, the higher the chance that we will be able to. Yeah, you know? and if you are working with electric blue day geckos, and you look for care on Google, 
mm-hmm. uh, search care and husbandry and stuff, it's going to direct you back to Frank in Absolutely. some way. It's going to yeah. be either the reptile magazine article he wrote, I th- or was it? Yeah, I believe it was yeah. reptile magazine. Um, yeah. yeah. It's going to take you to that article or the, the care sheet that he has on his website, which is like probably as if you're looking for an in-depth care sheet, like that's a perfect template because that thing is like spot on. You know, I hate it when you go to look up a care sheet and it's basically generalized stuff that's like super old, outdated. I mean, he's he goes into the types of lighting and the nutrients and stuff. And he does have a biological background. So um, I think he's a biology teacher, if I'm not mistaken. So he I mean, he does have the education and the knowledge base to to support some of the more in-depth aspects of his care sheet, but it is a really, really good care sheet. And it probably could be applied to pretty much any of those day geckos that are from Madagascar or Africa. Um, I would think, you know, it would be pretty applicable. Yeah. And, and I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, have I produced a thousand of anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. (laughs) I don't even know if I produced a thousand dubia roaches at this point, you know? Um, like that's uh, that's super impressive. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, we should make him. We should make him a uh, trophy, a medal, at least a medal, something. He um, deserves it. Could we like downgrade that to just an email? No, I'm gonna upgrade it. Okay. Upgrade. Yeah. Well, it's on you then, Frank. I would have just sent you an email, man. Thanks. <laughs> I think you know. I'm just going out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure I know already who his favorite uh, host is. <laughs> <laughs> okay well cool <laughs> you right, guys cool. can have a little club let's okay. go on to the next let's go on to the next person all right here's uh brian what has been your proudest moment or proudest experience as a reptile uh, keeper slash breeder yeah um so after putting some thought into this question it was difficult for me to narrow it down to one moment. Um, and I guess in the span of our lives, you know, we can look back on a specific period of time, whether it be a year in this case for me, um, and look at that as a moment. And this past season, to be honest, uh, for me has been probably my, my proudest moment. Um, I, you know, just as far as um, the the species that I've produced, I've produced 15 species this season. Um, and some of those have included some that are um, kind of trickier, rarer species um, that a lot of people really aren't producing. Um, and so that to me was kind of just like, a, you know, as I look at the season as a whole already, and it's not done yet, uh, you know, I've got literally babies hatching as we speak um of a couple different species and it's just it's awesome i feel really fortunate and lucky to to be in the spot that i'm in right now what species are we speaking about here and i guess two questions and do you feel like it's the most uh rewarding or your proudest moment because the species in question are difficult or because of something else that i'm missing but yeah what species are we talking about first um yeah. So, I mean, if you, the trickiest, I mean, I, mean, I guess the ones that I'm most proud of this year, it's got to be the, the Varanids, um, you know, two species okay. of tree monitor, the, the McCray eye and the Rice and Um, 
the, those are the blues and the yellow tree monitors, um, you know, and uh, some chondros. That's been nice. Um, I got also some some true captive bred um, abronia lithrochyla that uh, a lot of the abronia that people have, you know, get babies from, they bring in that they're wild caught animals and then they end up giving a litter. And, um, you know, with this species, you know, these were animals that I got as babies and have raised up. So um, I was definitely happy to get a litter from them and to get both the tree monitor species going and, and two clutches of chondros and then various gecko species um, that kind of fill in the rest. Yeah. And I, and I by no means take any of that as like all me. I mean, luckily at this day and age, we've got a lot of people who have paved the way and have gone through a lot of the hard times of figuring things out. So I was very lucky to have um, some really generous um, people who, have far more experience than than I do, um, who were able to help out along the way. Um. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? He's got 15 species. Yeah. And the, the monitors, uh, the blues, they're not easy to breed. I know two people that have worked with them and have unsuccessfully tried to breed them uh, multiple times. So whatever he's doing um that that's good that's good that's hats off to him because that is so cool yeah they're pretty difficult that is so cool and the abronia that he mentioned those are the red lip alligator lizards yeah and most of the abronia stuff i only know this because i went and visited forest fanning uh, before he passed away and he had a probably the most diverse collection of abronia in the world one of at least and i really really got to see you know how cool they were because of forest and i I don't know them all but they're very unique and i could see i mean that's a rabbit hole dude like you could you could go off the deep end with because there's so many different species there's still some that like we don't even have wow wow that's that's super cool man that would be awesome. You know, I have species that I focus on um, over the last several years. I've bred something new each year or something that I haven't bred before. Uh-huh. And it is the coolest feeling. I mean, it is so exciting. And to work with something like that, you know, yellow tree monitors, blue tree monitors, like, man, I can't imagine. I bet that it's just fantastic feeling. Oh, for sure. He, yeah. you know, he's, he, he's, you know, and like kind of the same sense of what Frank was saying. I mean, a lot of this stuff's very difficult to find, um, or, you know, hard to take care of. And he's, you know, putting that stuff out into the hobby. So hopefully in the future, you know, we'll have a stronger colony that could be traced back to some O'Brien stuff. So cool. Well, let's get right into the second question, and we'll start off with Frank. Here is Frank's answer to the second question. The second question is, what's been your most challenging moment as a reptile keeper breeder? Um, So I don't know if I could pick a moment, but um, I do, I have faced, and I continue to face serious challenges um, with consistently producing two species that I work with, one, the lesser chameleon or fursifer minor. 
uh, which is a very rare, also an endangered species of chameleon from Madagascar. Um, and also the spotted flying lizards, the Draco maculatus that I breed. Um, so I've bred both those species and even with the first for minor in fairly large numbers, probably, you know, I've probably produced close to 200 of them. Um, definitely more than anyone in the country, you know, maybe more than anyone ever. I don't know. Um, but as much, you know, as I've done pretty well with them, they still throw me curveballs. I still have issues with females um, and with raising babies that I can't, you know, pin down you know, what's wrong. And, you know, they're still, they're not a species whose code I've cracked. I, I should say like William Psy, I feel very confident with them. I know how to take care of them. I know how to produce them. I know how to keep them healthy. Um, with those two species, you know, they're, they're both very rare species. Like I, there is no, there is, there's no care information out there on those species other than what I've created and what I, what I've been learning. So it is kind of from scratch. Um, and they, both those species, you know, make me crazy some days, you know, like, and, you know, break my heart, you know, losing an animal out of nowhere, that sort of thing. It's, it's all over the place. It's so weird. And part of me makes, you know, I wonder, I did move several times. And I wonder if just like the, just those little changes and, you know, even though I'm using the same enclosures, the same routines, if I'm in just being in a different environment, a different home, a different facility, you know, that, that could cause changes with that species. Um, so for instance, when I first started with them, you know, first couple of years, I had zero issues, zero. I produced as many as I wanted to. I actually stopped breeding them because I was producing more eggs and babies than I could handle. You know, I did that for several years. And then it's just like the past year and a half, I'm just, I'm having way more reproductive issues with females. Um, raising the babies has always been difficult. You know, a, a percentage of them have like always just not thrived very well. Like 20 to 30% just won't thrive and will die. Um, but, you know, back a couple, several years ago, if I'm producing 100 eggs, like, you know, if 20 or 30 of them don't thrive, you're still producing, you know, 70 or more that are doing very well. But it's, I just had just the past year and a half. I don't know what's changed. It's something that I'm experimenting with, playing around with. Um, the flying lizards is another story. I've only I've been working with them barely a year. I produced several clutches. Um, the babies have been proven very difficult to raise. Like I'm having like 50% success, 40% success raising oh, wow. the babies. You know, I, I, it's, it's something that drives me insane, but at the same time, you know, there's only one other person in the country that's ever, you know, that's ever bred that species, you know, yeah. that, at least is, that at least is public about it. Maybe, maybe other people have, and they just haven't shared. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's no information out there. So it's just like me trying to, to figure it out. <laughs> Dude, how cool would it be to have a flying lizard just like cruising your house like a sugar glider? I mean that yeah, I, I would get nothing done. <laughs> like, <laughs> simply put, <laughs> I would get nothing done. <laughs> oh man, that would be so so cool. Not just because I would get sidetracked, but also because I'm slow. Yeah. <laughs> You know, one of the things that struck me that he said is, is here he is making hundreds of these carpet chameleons, and yet he knows there's room for improvement. It's not, it's not good enough. And I don't mean it's not good enough and that he's not, he's not fulfilled or he's not grateful for what he's had, but yet he knows that there's room for improvement. He knows that he can honor the animal better, take care of the animal better, and he's trying to improve, even though he's, he's 
creating just really crazy volumes of these, you know? I, I feel like that's what separates a good keeper from a great keeper is mm. the willingness to evolve, you know, yeah. and, and to change for the better, for the betterment of the species that we're talking about, you know, for the species that you're keeping. Um, if you're not willing to do that, then yeah, you may get by, you may be consistent. You probably be good, considered good by, by, you know, everybody in the hobby because you consistently produce that animal. You know, but are you like stretching the boundaries? And and for some people, maybe that's not what they want. And that's I'm not saying that's not okay. I'm just saying, you know, people. I think greatness is when you think outside the box. You're not complacent, and you evolve with whatever the subject matter is. Let's get real here. What could you? What's what's something that you could be better at? What could you do to improve? Um, we're talking about reptile keeping. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, that, I mean, that was what I was thinking of, but I don't know. You yeah, want to drop yeah. a bomb on me? Some, some, that's fine. I, I probably, you know, I, I don't know. Like there's a lot of stuff that I, I need to be better about feeding my animals for one. Like I don't, my animals are lucky if they get two meals a month. Um, I need to be better about that. I have all my stuff is just smaller, you know, I mean, they're healthy. They're yeah. Small, they're just not, you know, I don't, I don't grow anything up fast. Um, I don't know, like breeding season, I get lazy. So I should probably get like, put more effort into breeding season. Sometimes I don't even pair stuff up. I'm so lazy. That's pretty. Lazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm just being, being honest. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I keep everything in like display cages um, and well, everything except for like my, my Kings, but like, I just don't, you know, I go out there, I clean, I'm every, every week, you know, but I just don't really go. I don't know. Man, I, with me, with me, it's water. Reg, regular water changes. Like I know, like that's Oh yeah. That, yeah. Regular water changes, changing water bowls um checking on that on a regular basis i know i can do better at that and i i need to do better at that so i'm super excited about getting the new building built getting systems in place to where systems and schedules you know systems and schedules to keep me accountable and and to do that yeah for sure that's, yeah, that's I mean, when I that question yeah i mean i i think consistency is important you know and I just, for me, it's just, you know, earlier this year and a little bit into the last year, I just worked too much. So it wasn't, so when I did have time to like kick it, you know, I'm like, oh, dude, I don't feel like going out in the shed and, and working, you know, in 95 degrees and I'm like beat already. So, but you know, there's excuses for everything and it's just a matter of making some tweaks and changes. That's, that's exactly where I want to be at night put the kids to bed slip out to the snake room put on a red headlamp love it. <laughs> come to, i come to bed an hour two hours later just grinning from ear to ear love it love it so. mm. well you're bre- right. you're you're breeding the crap out of everything so <laughs> uh, apparently it, it's working all right that was frank let's listen to uh let's listen to nick same question 
what's your most challenging moment as a reptile keeper slash breeder? It could be the same answer. <laughs> uh, that you know, that's honestly, this would be probably something no one else will give you this answer. And I would say, like, uh, keeping and breeding reptiles is pretty easy for the most part. I mean, people kind of overly mystify things. It's really not that difficult. I mean, most of these things are. It's not terribly hard to breed most species. Uh, I would say the most challenging moment in my career was 2008 when the economy imploded. And, you know, if you're in a, if your livelihood is basically that you sell luxury reptiles and all of a sudden the economy is in this uh, small depression, uh, the times get pretty tough. And it really forced me to sort of really take my game up a notch. And if you have to, you know, if you're doing this full time, as I do, you have to, there's always somebody spending money, but in recessionary or de- depression times, economically, the pool of money is much smaller. And so you have to really, really uh, do your damnedest to, to, to get those, uh, to get what is out there. And so it forced me to yeah, up my professionalism, my record keeping, my lineage records, all of this stuff was in response to that, uh, to make yourself, it made me better, I guess, at what I do, uh, because you didn't have a choice. It's like you either take it up a notch and really separate yourself from what everybody else is doing, or you don't survive economically. I think people tend to look at uh, difficult times and challenges as this totally negative sort of thing, when really it's only so much of it is our perception of things. If we perceive something to be bad, then it's bad. If we perceive it to be dangerous, it's dangerous. You don't have to accept that. You can use that you know trying times economically that are less than ideal as an opportunity to learn a new skill to learn some way to kind of pick up the slack and ultimately i came out of that period of time i did better in 2008 than i did in 2007 it made me a better breeder it made me a better you know at the business aspects of this because i had to um and it 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 forged you know, more. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why I'm still around after all these years. And it's, you have to, to survive and have longevity in the reptile industry is you really have to be able to kind of adapt. Um, the times change, people's whims and what they fancy at any particular moment change. The economy changes, market fluctuations and prices, everything is constantly in flux and being able to navigate that, um, you're constantly swimming upstream. But uh, I don't know. I, the lessons I learned in 2008 when it became, all right, it is time to get serious. What do I need to do to be the best at this? And that that's what came out of it. So out of a bad situation, you know, for most people, it turned that into something positive in the long term. I mean, what do I need to be the best at this? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a hard question to answer, you know? Um, but a lot of people don't think about the recession and how it affected people that, you know, were doing this as their livelihood. But, you know, I, I don't know, man, that's, that's a hard one. I, I, I remember, you know, I wasn't working for myself, but it was, it was hard for people, you know, just employment in general, just it just sucked at that time. I think you can draw a, a small comparison to, you know, trying to stand out then to 
now the increased competition now, you know? So now, you know, we're not in recession. I mean, we probably, we probably should be, I don't know. It doesn't make sense, but like last year I was like, I need to sell some snakes. People are going to realize they need to like use this stimulus money, like buy food. And then what happened? They didn't buy food. Apparently they had a lot of food. They just bought snakes and boats and jet skis and cars. (laughs) It was like, it was like the best year for retail ever, you know? That's what one other pe- person told me that breeds reptiles for a living. Um, I was actually talking to them in person and they were telling me, uh, you know, I was like, has it been rough? And that's exactly what they said is it, actually it was like they're, they hit record sales for reptiles. Yeah, yeah it was the easiest year ever. It, was, it just, it was, it blew my mind. I was just, it was crazy, you know? Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, so that's, that's kind of a tangent, but now there's, there's a lot of people that do this, uh, at a high level as their supplemental income or just as a side gig, you know, like you said, Frank's a teacher, Frank's got a job, you know, he's, but yet he's doing what he's doing at such a high level. And this isn't even his full-time thing. You know, there's a lot of people like that. And there's a lot more people that I feel like are, are in the hobby. Um, and so competition is, is higher, right? Cause there's just, there's more fish in the sea. And right. so now I feel like there's a little bit of a correlation to say, okay, now, you know, you don't, you don't need to succeed in order to convince people to buy a snake or an animal. Now you need to convince people to buy your animal, right? Right. And Why I should I buy a ball like, python from you instead of right. a thousand other breeders out here? You know, yeah. I could I could get a ball python from them. Yeah. So, people are asking that exact question because I, my ball pythons are still sitting there for sale. <laughs> <laughs> You're apparently not the person that they're. Stay away from Terry's ball pythons. That's that's right. No, that's literally. I'm asking, what do I need to do to be better so I can sell ball pythons? <laughs> Put a podcast out and then start asking on every show. Will someone please buy my ball pythons? There you They're go. On the market. There you go. Mention this. Mention this episode for ten percent off. There you go. <laughs> Attaboy! You just made yourself different. Oh, uh, that's fantastic! Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. So All right. Here we go. Moving on. Moving on. Here's Brian. What's the most challenging? Uh, moment been um so I'll yeah <clears throat> i think we all you know get go into working with a species with we all have high hopes and um lots of times uh things go wrong things don't work out the first time and um it can be easy to you know kind of throw your hands up and give up after your your failures um but uh uh, you know, one thing that I'd heard a while back was fail forward, you know, so failure that we have is, is a learning lesson. And uh, I definitely had that with, um, you know, the chondros for sure. I mean, before I got into geckos, I used to I just, you know, I was one of the old school chondro heads back on the chondro web back in the day. And, you know, then the MVF and I had a large collection and, you know, did not have a lot of success. And um, so, kind of 
it's nice to have been getting some clutches recently in the past couple of years and being successful with that. And, you know, in addition with the tree monitors kind of getting started out, you don't know how you're going to do. And, you know, you start getting bad clutch after bad clutch or things going wrong in incubation. And, uh, you know, you just learn from each of those failures and build upon them and move forward and, was able to have uh, some some good success now with with those. So I mean, those have kind of been my biggest, you know, my biggest failures, kind of with with some of those projects. And what a great attitude, huh? Fail yeah. forward. I, first time I had ever heard that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool, you know. And really, that's that's what it is. Every every challenge or crappy thing that happens to us, we have, it's a fork in the road. You know, we have two choices. We can uh, make ourselves a victim or we can make it an opportunity and grow from it. That's good. And, you know, I think there's another layer to this in that we work with live animals and some of our failures are dead animals. You know, those live animals don't stay alive. And I know, I know for myself, there's been times when, you know, the emotional attachment to an animal after I lose it is kind of greater than the the attachment to the project, you know, or, or it's easy for that to happen, you know, and and so you feel like, you know, you lose an animal and it's just you just want to give up, you know, or you want to throw in the towel or, you know, in fact, with with the dog tooth cat snakes with Boiga Cynodon, I'd, I'd written them off. I'd got some imports in that, um, that died right away. And I was like, I'm not doing that again. I'm only doing captive bred babies. And then I got some captive bred babies in, they were, they were, they were, they were great, but I wasn't at the point to, I didn't have the experience to take care of them and they died. And I was like, man, I don't want to kill any more animals, you know? So it's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And, uh, it wasn't until I got some captive bred adults that I was like, oh, okay, now, now I can kind of learn and, you know, I, but so maybe, maybe that example of failing forward, you know, instead of just giving up, I, I recognized my limitations and I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, you know, I need to, I need to start with something different, start with, you know, some really good stock that's not quite as fragile or, or, or something. It's kind of funny. I, I kind of did that with my Amazon tree boas because, but in a different way, like I used to keep them all in racks Mm -hmm. and I thought racks were the way to go. And I even talked about it on YouTube. I've talked about it on, you know, and I started having, um, issues with, you know, the, the, the gradients and the animals didn't seem super active. And I just wasn't getting the results that I wanted for not, as far as babies but just like temps and and everything i just didn't i didn't like how how it was set up and so i messed with how i uh arranged my perches and i changed a couple things inside the each tub and you know from like for example substrate to all paper and you know still still didn't didn't like it so i decided okay well i'm going to start moving everything into display cages ever since i've done that um sheds are better the animals seem to be much more active and you know just from a health standpoint i i just like the results much better so that's a way that i feel like 
you know, I spent a couple of years failing as far as husbandry goes. And then I ended up tweaking it and changing it to accommodate uh, better results or to produce better results. Yeah, so, so good. And, and I think I feel for these chondro people, man. I, I, I feel like there's chondro people and scrub people, Boland's people, you know, all these people that are working with some, some animals that are difficult or, or heartbreaking or humbling. Um, oh yeah. For those people that, for those people that don't give up and they, they stick with it and they're able to, to reach success. That's, that's what we need, you know? Well, yeah, their, their version of success is much smaller than ours. It, it's, it's, Hey, my, I saw my animals lock up or right. Hey, I found a male, you know, like, right. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just getting a pair seeing a, a copulation and then maybe next time it'll be, you know, Oh, I actually saw a, an ovulation or, or something, you know, you know, that's the way, that's the way I look at it anyway. Put them together for five minutes and the female didn't eat the male this time. You know, yeah, hey. There you go. There you yeah. go. All right. So the, our third question that, that you asked was, uh, do they have any regrets? So here's Frank Payne talking about uh, regret. Do you have any regrets? And, and that could be related to anything in the hobby or anything that was maybe going on since you've been in the hobby that maybe it's not even reptile related. Uh, but do you have sure. any regrets that uh, somehow are connected to uh, the reptile breeding and, and whatnot? Mm -hmm. And if not, what are they? Or well, for me personally, yeah. yeah, I do. I do have one for sure. My, for me personally, when it comes to reptiles, I mean, keeping them my literally my entire life since I, since I can remember. Um, but my biggest regret is not focusing on breeding several species like seriously from the beginning or at least more early on. Um, I've been keeping reptiles, like I say, you know, I'm pushing 40 years old and I've been keeping reptiles pretty much my whole life, but I've only been seriously breeding several species, you know, for like less than 10 years. Like I've been keeping and breeding reptiles for over 25 years. Um, but I haven't really been focusing on stuff like the William Psy or, or the chameleons. Like I have been, you know, in the past eight years or 10 years or whatever. Um, so I really regret not, it feels like a lot of wasted time where I was just like, you know, like most reptile keepers, you start out or even for a long period, of, you, I want two of this. I want two of that. I want one of that you know, just a bunch of different things. I do think that helped me uh, build diversified experience and, and taught me a lot, but I do feel like I wasted a lot of time and not like, and not focusing on some species that, that need attention in the hobby that, you know, I could have earlier. I do think that I would definitely pick the species um, that I'm working with now. Cause like they just, I I'm working with them because I like them so much because I care about them. I, that I find them interesting. There are certainly a few species um, like some of the leaf tail geckos and some species of chameleon that you basically just like can't, you can't get anymore. Um, but you know, for the most part, it's really the same species, but you know, like there, there are other things like other geckos and that I really want to want to work with that I just, Right now, I just don't have the space for um, that I eventually, hopefully, will get to one day. But, you know, if I had started sooner, I could be a little further ahead. I feel like everybody could say that about something they've worked with. 
I bred the the first snake I ever bred was uh, Burmese pythons, and I did it in college, and I got three good eggs the first year and a bunch of infertiles. Didn't have a good incubator. I ended up ended up losing the eggs, and then never ever bred her again. The next year I studied abroad. The year after that I studied the the next three years I studied abroad, it or traveled abroad over, you know, my Christmas break. I was like, ah. Christmas break, you know, go somewhere. Um, and I never was able to see that. And I think, man, how would it have changed my life to see a little head come out of that egg back then? Yeah, I wish I would have kept all of my first babies for my first clutches as holdbacks because I was in such a hurry to sell them, you know, to you know, recoup my investment or something that. I sold them all. And then three years, four years later, I was like, oh man, I really wish I had had those. If those were ready right now, I'd be breeding those that, you know, the collection would be better and all that stuff. So that's, that's something that I really wish I would have focused on as well. Yeah. And, and I wish I would have too. I mean, pretty much every species I keep, I wish I would have done that with. I wish I would have stuck with them and not sold them. You know, I did get out of the hobby completely for a couple of years. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I mean, you know, every species I have now for the exception of the Ganyasoma, I've had them before and gotten yeah. rid of them. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. So. All right. Well, here's, here's Brian talking about regret. <laughs> Are there any regrets? Uh, you've been at it a long time. A lot of different species you work with. Um, do you have any regrets in regards to a specific species or just something that overall you've changed things up because uh, you feel differently or you had a poor experience or, or anything like that? Um, you know, the biggest, I guess, the only regret I can really think of um, was right before I started getting back into geckos heavily. Um, I had a chance to buy a friend, uh, Derek Dunlop. Uh, he was DD oh, okay. reptiles back in the day and he was selling off his collection and had a phenomenal collection and not buying <laughs> everything I could from him. Um, at that time would probably have been my biggest regret, but, um, you know, I was able to get a, you know, a basically a, a group of eggs, uh, a couple containers of his eggs of random species, which is kind of a risky thing at the time for me, but it worked out great. But man, I missed out on some unique opportunities that uh, ended up blossoming um, in, in other folks' hands, which is great. You know, it's good to stuff happen. But yeah, it was like, oh boy, should have got that. <laughs> anything yeah. you wish you would have bought that you had missed out on um Moluccan scrubs oh that's always, that's always going to be my answer to that question Moluccan scrubs yeah so the the guy that i'm gonna look him up because he deserves to be looked up the um the guy that hashed him out this year uh you know his name oh yeah there was this guy i think he's in california marcel he he got a clutch of Malukins this year, and oh. they haven't hatched yet. I don't think they've hatched yet. Um, but 
he had a really decent clutch and he had those snakes for sale earlier this year i was talking to him about them oh i didn't know that see i know anthony caponetto bred them as well as rolf uh i can't remember can't remember his last name but his first name's rolf they both produced small clutches i think in like 2006 somewhere around this this is a big one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Oh yeah, 14. that is big. It's like seventeen eggs. They all look great. I hope they all hatch. Anthony um, Anthony's was only four eggs. I remember that specifically because I remember when he hatched them, I thought about buying them and I didn't. Um, and Rolf had a, a larger clutch, if memory serves me right. Yeah, that's cool. I'm trying to I'm trying to think if there's anything that I I wanted to buy that I didn't. And I guess I can't think of anything offhand. That's or maybe a bad thing. Maybe I just buy everything, and then that's not. I don't know if that's good. And then you show some restraint. Yeah, that's a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, here let's let's wrap it up with with Nick. We'll give him the last word here. Uh, any regret? Uh, do you have any regrets? Uh, this is another sort of, I tend to be waxing philosophical in my old age, uh, but probably that for too many years, I listened to the sort of naysayers that were in my life. There are always those people, everybody, anybody listening to this knows this to be true, that no matter what your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, the thing that you want to do most, it doesn't matter what that thing is. That's up to the individual. But no matter what it is, there are always going to be a cacophony of people in your life that come out of the woodwork to tell you you can't do it. You can't do that. You can't breed reptiles for a living. You can't make money doing this. You can't support you. Like, they always they'll come out of the woodwork to salt you down. And the reason is because it's, again, a bit philosophical, but the reason is, is simple. And that is that everybody has hopes and dreams and aspirations. Everybody had that thing that they wanted to do with their life more than anything else. And the reality is that most people never even try. They never even took the first step towards trying to make that a reality. And if you, if they see, since they didn't do that in their life, if they see you pursue your dreams and you're successful, they have to take a hard look at why they didn't pursue their dreams. And at an unconscious level, it just becomes easier to salt you down and discourage you because they didn't chase after what they wanted to do, what might have made them happy. And we all tend to listen to those people a bit more than we should. And I know I did. Uh, I should have basically turned pro, so to speak, a bit sooner than I did. I listened. I was a bit too cautious, probably. I listened to those, the naysayers a bit too long. And I should have been listening to myself and, you know, and and trusting in my own abilities and my own vision for what I wanted to do and not listening to the negativity all around me. So I regret not, you know, not doing it sooner. In a general sense, I think you're more likely... Uh, you know, overthinking something is probably the better is probably better than underthinking it. But if you think you have a good plan and you have a vision, you've got to do it. You've got to follow. You've got to take that step. You've got to take that leap. If you don't, you're never going to get there. There's nothing worth having that doesn't come at a cost. It doesn't come. There's all there's no reward that doesn't have a, you know, that you're going to everything. Risk is proportional to reward. You're not going to achieve the thing that you want to achieve without putting some skin in the game and taking some risk, you know, you can mitigate that and make that a calculated risk, but you're, you have to, you have to do it. Too many people go through their whole lives. They talk a good game about they want to do this and they want to do that. And they never do anything. 
It's like you have to do, you have to follow through and execute and just take that leap. Think it through, but ultimately you have to take decisive action. And most people, you know, we all know people like that where they go their whole lives and they don't ever actually go for it. I mean, really go for it at anything. And it doesn't really matter what the thing is, but sometimes you just have to go for it. Um, If you want the life, a certain life and you want you, you know, that's what you want, then you've, you've got to pursue that by all means necessary. And if you don't, you're not going to get there. I mean, I, I made that decision. I took that leap and it was the best decision I ever made. I have the most awesome job in the world. I literally get to write books, play with snakes, travel around the world and do awesome stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes it, you know, you're getting bit and peed on and whatnot by reptiles and cleaning rats every once a week. Isn't any fun either, but I mean, I'm just saying as a general proposition, I get to do what I love most for a lot for a living. And that is worth something. You know, do I have the largest house in the neighborhood? No. Do I care? No. Because frankly, I can't even keep my little house clean. I couldn't imagine if it was any bigger, it'd just be a bigger mess, frankly. But I mean, I'm just saying like the lifestyle that I want to live, have everything that I want to have. And I do the thing I love to do most for a living because I at some point stopped listening to all those other people and started listening to myself and I went for it. And anybody can do that. Booyah, man. There you go. <laughs> no mic drop from uh, Mr. Mutton there. Yeah, he he uh, he got real with us. That's um, right. I, I want to apply for the job. The The job description is write books, play with snakes, travel the world, and do awesome stuff. Yeah, I think we all would apply for that job. I think we would all volunteer. <laughs> I'll do a free internship. Well, um, and... Well, and I think I think what he's saying here is that, man, if that's our dream, if that's what we want to do, then do it. Yeah. I mean, you do have to be smart. You know, it does take some planning. Uh, but, you know, I wouldn't say quit your job and, and go breed snakes now. But if you, you know, set some goals, some milestones to get things set up legally, then, you know, that's what I did with my, I went out and started working for myself. It's not breeding snakes, but it's, you know, I'm an appraiser and I run an appraisal firm. And so I had to be smart, but, and it was very risky, but I ended up taking a leap and I ended up doing it sooner than my initial goal was to, to go out on my own. So, uh, I can personally attest to what he's saying is true. Did you do it in the time in which you had wanted to, or did you wait to, to go off on your own um, because of like what Nick says, because of the naysayers that said not to? Um, I would say I could have done it about a year and a half earlier uh-huh. and I wish I would have Yeah, sort of um, in some ways, but I also learned a different facet of my industry that I would not have learned had I not worked for this company for a year. Um, and that's actually the direction I was headed. It's when I realized that I didn't like that and wanted to go back to what I was doing that I decided, well, I'm gonna go back to what I was doing, but I'm going to do it for myself. So I'm actually in the middle of this right now. So I just quit my job. Uh, last month and I'm transitioning to a new career, a new, a new career, not a new job and a new career, um, completely different industry, something that I've, I've never been into, um, as a, a mortgage loan officer. 
And I think fantastic. A friend of mine asked me the other, the other week, he said, are, you know, how, how do you feel? You know, you're kind of unemployed right now. I said, man, I've, I've never been more comfortable. Like I've never been more comfortable with the decision. Like this was the right thing to do. And, and that's something that really I probably should have done in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and you know, what's funny and I would never get this personal with, with a guest on the show, but if you were to ask Nick, if he's making more money now or when he worked for someone else, I guarantee you he'd say now. Mm -hmm. And, And I know for me, I am. And I think it's because we're passionate and driven mm-hmm. and whatever it is that we're doing, we generally like doing like, yeah, I don't work with snakes, but I love my job. Yeah. And I know Nick loves his job. And so it's like, you love it. So you're going to work hard at it. That's partially what motivates you, but you also, you know, you can make a grip if you want to hustle for it. And you, and what's so nice is troll, you know, well now, now we're just talking about being an entrepreneur, being your own boss. And, and that's right, one thing right. I really, that's that's one thing that I really was attracted to being a, a loan officer. I mean, it's a commission job that can be scary, you know. And I've had people say, "Well, dude, it's commission, you know, that's not guaranteed." And, and I'm so tired of being at the ceiling of all the pay scales, you know, and right and seeing somebody with a lot less experience or with a lot less drive, you know, getting paid the same amount as me. I said it stifles your, your drive. It stifles your motivation to, to do better, you know? And I said, I mean, not to be, not to be pompous or arrogant, but I haven't, I haven't been bad at anything I ever did, you know, in terms of my jobs, right? Like I, I figured it out. I gamed the system, I did the shortcuts, figured out how to do things better. And I got better. And I was like, I don't think, I think this is going to be exactly the same, except now I'm in control. And I, you know, so, so that's one thing that I, I see that, uh, that you've, you've achieved in your life with your new career. I feel like every time I talk to you, you're on a different vacation. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really, it's really aggravating. <laughs> every I'm time sorry? I talk to you, you're on a really, really just a different vacation. Uh, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm more happy for your family that they get, they get to, to reap those benefits. And, uh, so that's fantastic. And, um, and one thing that, that hit me when I'm listening to Nick talk about this, not, not only to, Hey, don't, don't listen to the naysayers, but also I got to take a look at myself and say, was I ever a naysayer myself? Am I yeah. poo pooing on other people's dreams? I don't want that. To happen. Yeah. I mean, it makes you really kind of dig in and look inward. I never want to be that, that person, you know, and and so I'm definitely approaching things with that in mind, that if somebody has a dream or a goal or something that they want to achieve or something that they want to do or something that they have done, not to, not to belittle it or make it less or say that they can't do it out of my insecurities, but instead to support them and to celebrate their wins. Because let's say it, a win for someone else is not a loss for us. You know, it's sad, but that's, that's the society we live in. It's become that. I mean, you jump on social media and it doesn't take you long before you see those types of posts. Right. Um, right. And, 
And, and we've been like that even with, within the reptile hobby, you know, you, someone produces something you've seen, you know, people will, well, you know, they're, yeah. Uh, you know, you've got all these self-proclaimed experts, but um, you know, we should, we, we should change that. We're, we're kind of a minority as a, as far as a hobby is concerned. And we really should be helping each other out and rooting out all the, the bad that's associated with it. Well, and I, and I, it's, it's way better than it was. And I think it's going to continue to get better. I, I see more support because I see the industry growing so much. I, I, it's growing so much. I think there's room for everyone. And because of that, I think um, it's, you know, a rising tide, you know, raises all the ships, you know? So if, if I see you do better, I know that I'm going to do better as a result, you know, if you right. make the hobby better, it's, gonna be, it's going to be better. So I definitely, you know, going forward, want to be uh, a force for positivity. I want to use this platform that you and I have uh, with the Serp serpent stream to do that. Any sort of platform or influence that we have individually or collectively, I definitely want to be a power for good power support, power for, uh, inspiration, motivation. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, uh, I say this, this wraps up our first, uh, I guess, I know we have a, we had a pilot, but this is kind of like the first real show. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm happy with the outcome. Uh, if you guys want, you can find us on Patreon. If you want to become a, uh, and actually pledge, uh, to the show, there's some little, uh, kickbacks that you'll get, um, uh, and that kind of just helps us with, with keeping the podcast afloat. If you have any questions or you want to do that, you can reach us at the serpent stream at gmail.com, or you could send either of us a, you know, a private message on Instagram or, or, or Facebook. Right. A special thanks to all our guests, Nick, Brian, and Frank. Uh, you can find them at inland reptile, sundown reptiles and living art by Frank Payne. A uh, quick search for all those will pull up their information please follow them on instagram shoot them a message uh tell them a big thank you for coming on the show we really appreciate it and until next time you're listening to the serpent stream <laughs>